read and open your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Continuing on in our series in Titus uh, called Blueprint for Godliness. Uh, Thinking this week about godly change. What does it look like to change? How do we change? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. I'm just going to read those verses, and then we're going to come before the Lord in prayer and consider what these things would have to say to us. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Hear God's voice. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let me pray. Father, we ask that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not yet would you make us for the sake of Jesus' name and your glory. Amen. Let me ask you, uh, just as we begin our time, are you someone who finds it hard to say no? Do you find it hard to say no? James, James is a new Christian. Before he became a Christian, he lacked self-control in a number of areas, but particularly with alcohol, and he regularly got drunk. Now that he is a Christian, he has seen his life change a lot, but sometimes he still finds it hard to say no, to say no to alcohol. He seeks out help from his Christian friend. His Christian friend says to him, James, don't get drunk. He gives him lots of good practical advice about boundaries and habits and accountability, and James goes away and he tries not to get drunk, but things just don't seem to be changing. He's beginning to doubt if he really is a Christian. He's discouraged that he doesn't seem to be changing. Titus 2 this morning in these verses is all about change. It's about learning how to say no to ungodliness. It shows us how we become more godly, kind of takes us under the bonnet, so to speak, and shows us how our hearts and our lives change. But it doesn't start with rules and practical advice. It shows us that godly behavior, and this is really key for us, not just this morning, but in our whole Christian lives to grasp, that godly behavior starts with and is fueled by grace. Godly behavior is fueled by grace. Grace is not just the keys to the car, so to speak. Grace is not just the keys to the front door of the Christian life. Grace is the engine which drives our whole Christian lives. Shows us how we are to live through our whole Christian lives. Shows us how grace changes us. 
And it shows us how fixing our eyes on Jesus is what enables us to say no and to become more godly. So if you're a Christian here this morning, the good news is that you are, are already saved by grace. But you aren't just saved by grace, you are changed by grace. Grasping this passage is critical to how you view yourself and how you grow in godliness. As a church, grasping this passage is critical if we as a church want to be faithful to the gospel, if we want to proclaim and teach a gospel of grace, not a gospel of grace plus good works. It's critical that we grasp this if we want to see lives really changed, not just surface changed, but heart changed. And it's essential if we want to make the gospel beautiful to those around us. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning, or you're still figuring that out, or you're just starting out on your Christian journey. Titus 2, 11 to 15 invites you to see that God wants to save you, but He also wants to change you. Yes, He saves us as we are, but He also wants to change our lives to make us more like Jesus. Titus 2 is an invitation to you to see that only grace only grace can bring about real lasting change in your life and give you real eternal hope. Only grace can transform your present, your past, and your future. So here's the big response for us this morning from these verses. Say no to ungodliness because of the grace and glory of Jesus. Say no to ungodliness because of the grace and glory of Jesus. First thing together then we, we, we see together this morning from these verses is this, I will change when the grace of Jesus becomes my trainer. If you look down again at verses 11 to 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. So verse 11 starts with that word for. It's connected to the verses we thought about last week, those verses 1 to 10, the life of godliness that we're called to Uh, uh, specific to our our sex and our stage of life. These verses are how and why we are to live that godly life. I don't know if you, maybe even last Sunday or in small group, you read those verses or we talked about those verses and you thought, man, that's a high bar. That sounds hard. How do I do this? Verses 11 to 15 are the answer. How and why are we to live that godly life that verses 1 to 10 called us to? In short, because of grace. We can live a godly life because of grace. And two big things we see in verses 11 to 12 about grace. Firstly, it's a saving grace. Secondly, it's a changing grace. Grace saves us from our ungodliness. That's what verse 11 tells us, first of all, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Salvation. Grace, first of all, saves. What is grace? It's God's saving sinful people even though they don't deserve it. It's God's saving sinful people by lovingly sending Jesus to take our sin upon himself. It's God's undeserved favor towards us. I grew up with an acronym for grace. Maybe you did too. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's the riches of his mercy and of his love and of his grace poured upon us undeservedly, but at Christ's expense. Christ took the punishment. Christ paid the penalty. Christ died for us. That grace has appeared. Okay, God doesn't just promise grace. He doesn't just talk about grace. He acts. Grace has appeared in Jesus. Grace is a person. 
In Jesus, the God of all grace sends Jesus, who's full of grace, into the world to save us. Why do we need saving? Because by nature and by choice, we say no. We, we struggle to say no to ungodliness. We don't say no to ungodliness. We need saved because we choose to say yes to ungodliness and say no to God. That's our lives. That's our nature. That choice places us under the judgment and wrath of God. It rightly and justly incurs the penalty of death and hell. If we die in our sin, we get what we deserve. But God loves us. He sent Jesus to save us from death and wrath because we could not save ourselves. In Jesus, God gives us what we don't deserve, what we cannot earn by our own efforts and by our own good works. That's what grace is. Grace is Jesus appearing on earth to live the godly life we could never live, to die the death we deserve to die, and to purchase for us the gift of eternal life that we can never afford or earn. That's grace. And it's a gift which verse 11 tells us is available to all people. It's available to all those who, in response to the appearing of that grace, would turn from their sin and trust in the work of Jesus for us. That's faith. So if you're a Christian here this morning, God has saved you by grace alone. He did not save you because of anything good he saw in you or anything good you think you might have done for him. He saved you solely because of grace. He intervened in your life because of his mercy. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. That's the solid rock on which you get to rest your faith and from which you obey God. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that grace is available. It's available to everyone. If you would turn from your sins and trust in Christ, that grace can change your life forever. So grace is our Savior, but grace is also our trainer. Grace saves us, and grace trains us. That's what we also see in those verses. Grace has a change agenda. As I mentioned before, God saves us as we are. He saves us as we are in our sin, but he doesn't intend to leave us as we are. He wants to, he commands us to change, to become more like Jesus, to become godly. We can only be saved by grace, but we can only become more like Jesus by grace too. What do you mean by that? Well, let's go back to James. He's struggling to say no to alcohol. He listens to his Christian friend who says, don't get drunk. God says, don't get drunk. He gives him all these practical things, but it doesn't seem to be working. Why? Because effectively he's telling James to pull up the weed without getting to the root. He's telling him to pull up the weed without getting to the root. We know from the rest of the Bible that a change in behavior, that godliness can only come about from a changed heart. Only grace can change our hearts. At conversion, God, by his grace, gives us a new heart. That's the amazing reality of the gospel. We are given a new heart with a new love, with new desires, with the Spirit in us and God's law written on our hearts. That's the first thing. We're given new hearts, so it's not impossible for us now to become godly. But we know that sin still lingers, that we still struggle to say no, don't we? So saying no to ungodliness requires us to keep repenting of our sinful desires and keep turning in faith to Jesus every day of our Christian lives. 
to keep turning to Him and reminding ourselves of all that's true of us in Him. James' friend is well-meaning, and he's kind of right. God does call us not to get drunk, but he's put rules and behavior in front of repentance and belief. Do you see the subtle change there? He's put rules and behavior, he's front-loaded with rules and behavior rather than repentance and belief. He's given him rules rather than calling him to repentance for the lies he's believing about himself and the world around him. He's given him tasks to do rather than pointing him towards the greater truths of the gospel. He's given him good advice rather than good news of the gospel, which provides hope for real change and forgiveness for when he messes up. James is struggling to change because he's trying to crowbar his love for alcohol out of his life by doing things rather than replacing his love for alcohol by believing in Christ and all of his benefits. Don't hear me wrong on this, okay? It's not that we stop calling people to obey God's word. It's not that there's not commands. It's not that we don't call people to godly behavior. James's friend is half right. And avoiding temptation practically is vital, but only insofar as it gives space and time for grace to work in our hearts and change us insofar as it gives time for our desires and our loves and our thoughts and the things we believe about Christ and his world and ourselves to change. It must be heart change that we aim for if our godliness is to be genuine and lasting. Works-based, efforts-based, law-based Christianity says you should not get drunk, which is good, but it's missing grace. Grace says you need not get drunk because Jesus offers you a better refuge than the bottom of a bottle. Jesus satisfies you more than any substance. Jesus can give you a joy that surpasses any high you might experience. Maybe a slight illustration will help us to grasp this. Grace-fueled obedience is like this. It's like a bride who cooks a lovely meal, not because she is bound by some rule book, but because of the love she has for her husband. And it can work both ways, by the way. A bride who cooks lovely meals, not because she has to or because she's bound by a rule book, but because she loves her husband. That's grace-fueled obedience. That's real godliness. Obedience and godliness that flows from the heart. So the key then to true godliness, to real godliness, to real change, is to continually rest in and rediscover grace every day, to rediscover Jesus, to allow the truths and joy of life with Jesus to outweigh the treasures and the temptations and the trials we might face in this life. Grace says to James, you're loved by me. You are alive. You have new desires. You can change. The promises of alcohol are pathetic compared to the joy of knowing Jesus. And yes, you're called to obey my commands, but from a place of freedom and forgiveness. Grace says says to James, don't be prideful in your godliness. If you make progress, it's not ultimately of you. But also know this, if you mess up, I still love you. Don't despair. You are justified not by your works, but by 
grace. Grace says, James, in the gospel, I not only saved you, I not only justified you, but I will change you. Yes, you need to get on board with that. Yes, you need to actively participate in that. But ultimately, I will change you. I will purify you. I will glorify you. That's grace. That's the gospel. It's grace that enables us in verse 11 to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you're called to live that kind of life. You're called to live a life of self-control, an upright life, a godly life. Now, because of grace, you can do that. Grace has saved you. It's given you that new heart. It's given you new desires. It's empowered now by the Spirit. You've been united to Jesus. So you can say no to the old life. You must say no to the old life. You must say no to those old passions because of how much better and how good the new life with Jesus is. As a church, Jesus himself is full of grace and truth. We must give the world grace. If we want to give them Jesus, we must give them grace. Grace that can save and really change people's lives. We, we must give grace to one another too as we seek to disciple one another. We must treat and teach one another with grace when we mess up, when we seek to grow in godliness. We must call one another, our friends, our spouse, our children, to godliness, but godliness that's motivated by grace. This is key. Godliness motivated by keeping rules leads to pride and despair. Godliness motivated by grace leads to real change, lasting change. And when our friends, our children, or our spouse wrong us or mess up, we must make sure that we show them grace. We must make sure that when people come amongst us who don't know Jesus, that they grasp, not just by what we say up here or in conversation, but by how we live, they must grasp that the way to get to Jesus is not by being good, but it's by grace. That must be evident both in what we say and in how we treat one another and in how we counsel one another. It may be helpful to go back to an example in chapter 2, verse 4. Older women are to train younger women. Say they're to train them. Okay, the, the two words, train, and then we have train here in verse 11. Older women are to train younger women uh, uh, to become godly young women. Verse 11 tells us that grace must be the ultimate trainer there. What does that look like? Well, we call young women to live a godly life, but we don't train them by, by saying, here's how to be a, a godly young woman. Here's the behaviors. Now go and get on with it. That's crushing. We must make sure that we say to them, you can't be godly in and of yourself by your own efforts, by your own strength. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus has been godly for you. So repent of your shortcomings, trust in him, be forgiven, be freed, be loved, and be enabled to be godly. Now go and be a godly young woman. You see the difference? And as you go, when you feel your identity in Christ and your womanhood is still secure. Those things don't change. Young woman, the gospel of grace reminds you how much Christ has loved you. How he, verse 14 tells us, gave himself for you to redeem you. In light of that kind of love towards you, that's how you're to love your husband and your children. 
So in pursuing godliness, we must point to grace and we must also point to the glory of Jesus. That's the second thing we see together. I will change when the grace of Jesus becomes my trainer and the glory of Jesus becomes my focus, verses 13 to 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace changes us, but glory also changes us. We are to pursue godliness in this present age because of grace, but in light of that glorious appearance of Christ. Maybe we can think of it this way. Grace, both past and present, is what pushes us along in the Christian life, which is, forms a foundation, but glory pulls us. Future glory pulls us along. Grace pushes us. It forms a foundation. But we also need something to look forward to, the glorious appearance of Christ, and that is what pulls us along in our godliness. We need that future focus, that blessed hope that verse 13 talks about, to help us keep walking, to keep moving in the right direction. Um, The author Michael Allen, he's written a really helpful book called Grounded in Heaven. He says, hope shapes our behavior. Our hope will shape our behavior. What we look to, what we treasure, what what we focus on will shape our behavior in the present. What is our hope? Again, our hope is a person. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, Jesus himself is at the heart of our hope. He is our hope. Uh, I know a number of the youth have been asking the question recently, what is heaven like? It's a good question. It's a great question. The answer to that question is not so much a what, but a who. The ultimate joy and the thing which we should look forward to most about heaven is that we'll be face to face with Jesus. Jesus, in his presence, there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's our hope. Our hope is a person. It's Jesus. Yes, there are all the things that will come along with his return, the renewal of the world, resurrect the bodies, but at the heart of our hope is face-to-face with Christ, becoming totally like him. These verses give us lots of reasons to wait for, to, to hope in him, to focus on him. He is our great God. He is our Savior. He has redeemed us. He is purifying us. He possesses us. You see what verse 14 shows us is the goal of his redeeming work? Jesus saves us to do what? He redeems us from lawlessness to purify us and make us zealous for good works. Titus, Paul, sorry, keeps hammering home this theme of godliness. He has saved you. He has redeemed you from ungodliness, from lawlessness, to make you pure, to make you godly, to make you zealous for good works. That's the goal of his redeeming work. We can't remain stagnant in our ungodliness. It's important to note we aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Grace alone saves, yes, but grace changes us. So how does focusing on that blessed hope, on beholding the glory of Christ, change us? How does focusing on Him, setting our mind on things that are above, awaiting joyfully that blessed hope, that glorious return, how does that change us? 
Is it just pie-in-the-sky kind of thinking? How does it actually change us? How does it make us zealous for godliness? How does it motivate us to say no? Or maybe in other New Testament language, how does it motivate us to put off the old self and put on the new self? Well, um, January the 2nd, uh, my sister, my younger sister Chloe, is getting married. And uh, already through the post, Zoe has been ordering clothes for Nora and Joseph for the wedding. The anticipation of a future wedding makes Zoe enthusiastic and zealous about putting clothes on the kids. And I'm sure we'll need to start thinking about it pretty soon too. That's true when it comes to a wedding, isn't it? You, You don't get dressed the morning of the wedding. You think about it. You plan it. You clean your clothes. You iron them. Maybe you buy new clothes. It occupies your thoughts. It determines how you spend your money. Why? Because a wedding is a big, beautiful, exciting event, isn't it? That future event significantly shapes your behavior in the lead-up. So too with Christ. Christ is our bridegroom. We are his bride, the church. Pursuing godliness in this present age is like preparing ourselves for that wedding day. That's our motivation. Our motivation is the fact that we will one day be with him face to face and that he is better than anything else we can hope in and look forward to. When we look to him, it reorders our loves and our desires, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. It it motivates our desire to shed our sin and prepare ourselves for him. 1 John chapter 3, which should be on the screen for you, talks about this. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And verse 3, critical here, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see how our future hope provides present motivation for godliness. We want to get ready for that day. Glory causes us to focus Focusing on the glory of Christ caused us to do this, but we've also got to remember grace. And here's how grace comes into play. Grace is Jesus has given us the dress. He's already clothed us in his righteousness. He himself has at work to purify us. So yes, it's a work we must actively participate in and be involved in, but it's ultimately a work that he promises to complete. That's the grace of the gospel. Our struggles, our apathy in pursuing godliness, our frustrations or discouragement at lack of change is likely because we've lost sight of that day, because we've lost sight of our bridegroom. So we need to behold him again in all his glory. When we do that, we will become more like him. John Owen uh, has written a a book called The Glory of Christ, which is a whole book just about looking at the glory of Christ in all aspects of his life and, and in the future. He says, by faith, through the Scriptures, that's how we behold his glory. By faith, through Scripture, through all that Scripture tells us about him, behold the glory of Christ and let that glory so fill our hearts with love and admiration and adoration and praise to him that our souls will be transformed into his image. We behold, we become what we behold. So let's behold him in all his glory. 
couple examples of how this plays out from Scripture. Moses. Hebrews 11 tells us, verses 24 to 26, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He said no to ungodliness. Why? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. His heart and his life was focused on that future glory, that future reward, that future appearing of Christ. And that's what enabled him to say no. Psalm 73 as well, whom have I in heaven but you? The psalmist, again, is tempted by this discontentment. He's jealous of those around him who seem to have more than him, even though they are ungodly. And he comes to the conclusion, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, my flesh and my heart may feel, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is. Not the things God gives us, not the physical things that will happen, God himself. Looking to God, focusing on him, is what satisfies. When our focus becomes the glory of Christ, our love will be reordered, and the glorious weight of what lies ahead will outweigh anything that would seek to tempt us uh, in the present. So back to James, how does future glory, how does beholding the glory of Christ in the second appearance, how does focusing on him help James? Well, focusing on the glory of Christ puts the pleasures and satisfaction of alcohol into perspective for James. Turning to alcohol when life gets hard is no longer necessary for him because he has a real hope, because he has a future hope. Turning to alcohol when he feels dissatisfied is no longer necessary because he has a greater portion. Turning to alcohol when he's just bored is no longer necessary and must be stopped because Jesus calls us to, ze to be zealous for good works and he will hold us to account and we must be prepared to meet him. Turning to alcohol when James feels like a failure, the hope of grace and of glory says this, you are Jesus' possession, repent of your sinful mistakes and be assured of forgiveness. So behold your blessed hope. Meditate on the glory of Christ now by faith through the Scriptures. Preach it to your own heart. Preach it to the hearts of those around you in this room. Remind one another that what we have in Christ is better now than anything we could come across. That that future with Christ is much better than our present and future life in Christ compared to the life that we have now on earth. Your heart needs to be continually fed those things, to have those things declared to you. We need to be continually exhorted in those things. That's the last thing we see together. I will change when the grace of Jesus becomes my trainer, the glory of Jesus becomes my focus, and the words of Jesus become my authority. If you look at verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So he, Paul's speaking to Titus here. He's saying, declare these things. These things are the the, the truth and the godliness that we've been seeing throughout Titus, particularly the godliness of verses 1 to 15. He's to declare these things. They aren't just to sit on a page. They're to be declared, proclaimed, heralded. 
What does that declaration look like? Well, it looks like public preaching and teaching, yes, but it looks like studying. It looks like speaking the truth and love to one another on Sunday morning in small groups, in a coffee shop, over the dinner table, at bedtime. We are to declare these things, the truth of the gospel and the call to godliness. That declaration includes two key things, exhortation and rebuking. We've been thinking about this a bit as we've gone through Titus. Why do we need exhorting to these things? Because we so often lack zeal. We are to be zealous in good works. We need to be exhorted towards those things. We so easily become hardened and distracted and apathetic and lazy. We become inward focused. We need exhorted towards those things and we need rebuked. We need exhorted because we often lack zeal. We need rebuked because we often lack self-control. One of the key aspects of godliness we've seen. Rebuking is calling one another back to a faithful walk with Jesus with grace. And we're to declare these things with all authority. When we declare the truths of Scripture, we do so on the authority of Christ. When we faithfully declare these things, they come with an authority, an authority that must be heeded and submitted to. So make sure you're constantly having these things declared to you. Make sure you have people around you to exhort you and rebuke you. Make sure you're giving yourself to do that for others, to exhort and rebuke. We do so from God's Word, which when done faithfully carries that authority, and we need to come under that authority. We're not to disregard these things. We need to listen and submit to the call to truth and godliness. Our default is often to reject authority, isn't it? There's that thing in our hearts which doesn't like being called to godliness, that doesn't like having things pointed out in our hearts and our lives that are ungodly. Our default is to bulk at those things, to grit our teeth in defense. We need to submit ourselves to the authority of Christ's Word insofar as it's faithfully spoken to us. So easy to bulk at the Bible, to disregard its demands, but we are called to, for the sake of godliness, to submit to God's Word and to pursue godliness. Why should we humble ourselves before it and embrace it? Well, first of all, it's God's Word. It's authoritative. He is our Creator. We are creatures. We are to obey it because it's His Word, and we are to submit to that authority because it's good. Titus is all about the good life. The good life is a godly life. Why would we not submit to that authority? We also submit to that authority for God's glory to honor ultimately and to please Him. As those who are all called to teach in some fashion, maybe particularly we think of church leaders, but all of us are called to teach in some regard. All of us are teaching, whether conversations in that room over there with the kids, in small group, whatever it might be. All of us, therefore, need to keep declaring these things to one another, to keep calling one another to godliness, to exhort urgently, to rebuke courageously, to speak with authority, to not let anyone disregard the commands of Christ. Don't let pressure or cowardice or laziness or apathy keep you from declaring these things to one another. Don't allow stubbornness or pridefulness stop you from receiving these things from one another. Because people's godliness is at stake. People's lives are at stake. We can't afford to shy away from declaring the authority of Christ's words, which are full of the good news of God's grace towards us and the promise of the glorious return of Christ.
So, say no to ungodliness. Now, urgently, take this seriously. But do it because of the grace of Jesus and by looking forward to the glorious return of Christ. Be zealous in this. Zealous, fervent, urgent. Be ruthless in saying no to ungodliness. Surround yourself with people who will declare these things to you and submit your life to Jesus' good, authoritative, and life-giving words. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you admittedly as those who so often struggle to say no to ungodliness, who struggle to say no to the things that we know we should not do. Father, remind us of the grace which has saved us. Remind us of the truths of the gospel which can change us, change our desires, change our loves, change how our hearts think, what they believe, so that we might live a godly life for you. Help us to lift our eyes above the temptations and the trials and the hardships of this world and to look to Jesus. To meditate on that blessed hope, Father. So often we don't do that. So often our vision is just horizontal. Help us to look to that glorious return. Help us to look to that glorious future. Help us to treasure our inheritance with Christ. Give us the grace we need to change and help us to do that with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.